Good morning again. It is nice to be back with you and preaching to you for a second week in a row. Uh, we're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 6 this morning, but before we go there, let me pray uh, one more time. Father, we do pray as we've just sung that as we come to your word this morning, you would show us Christ. We want to see your glory revealed in your word, and so we pray that your spirit would come and would lead us into the truth of it. Father, I pray that as I I preach, the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing to you and useful to your people. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, question for you. If you could be king for a day, what would be the first thing that you would do? Think about that for just a minute. If you could be king for a day, what's the first thing that you would do? It's a great icebreaker question, but I actually want you to think a little bit more seriously about it, right? So no, I'm going to make my birthday a national holiday. No, I'm going to make birthday cake be breakfast every single day. Kids, no, you cannot banish your siblings to the dungeon, Hey. None of those things. If you could be king for the day, truly be king, if you had all the power of a king, the the backing of an army, authority, the allegiance of a nation, if you got to set the agenda for your kingdom, what would be the first thing that you would do? When you think about that question that way, it, it reveals a good bit about our motivations and the desires of our heart. You think about a a king who comes into power. What's the first thing that he's going to do, right? Well, King Arthur got his, his knights of the round table, right? He got his counselors and he put them around them so that he would be a wise king. Well, David in 2 Samuel chapter 6 does something a little bit different. So last week in in 2 Samuel chapter 5, we got to see David enthroned as king. And really what we get in 2 Samuel chapter 5 is this picture of David's kingship, what it was like for him to be king, but also we get a picture of David establishing his kingdom, right? He takes Jerusalem, he makes it his capital city, he defends it against the Philistines over and over again. And in chapter 6, the the author of 2 Samuel really gives us a glimpse into, it's not really David's first day as king, but it's his first official act as king after establishing his kingdom. And what David does is interesting. David brings, or at least tries to bring, the ark of God into Jerusalem. He wanted the ark in his capital. And we're going we're gonna to unpack that in just a moment. But for now, let's go ahead and turn to 2 Samuel chapter 6 and, and read this passage together. Chapter 6, verse 1. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah, 
and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were making merry before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put his hand out to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had burst forth against Uzzah, and that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite for three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. And as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed each to his house. And David returned to bless his household. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, how the king has honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. And I will make merry before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken by them, I shall be held in honor. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. This is a fascinating, strange, uncomfortable even story. And, and yet, as, as strange as it is, I think it contains some very important truths that we need to think about today. But b because it is so strange, I think the thing to do is to walk back through the narrative together to, to draw out some of the things that are happening going on so that we can really fully understand exactly what's going on in order then to, to be able to draw out the application that I think the Lord has for us this morning. And so, so that's what we're going to do. We're going we're gonna to just walk through the text, 
And then at the end, we're going to come back and circle around, and, and I'm going to make a few points of application as we go. So we, we begin in the beginning of chapter 6, and at the center of the story, the ark of God appears. Right? David went with all the people that were with him to bring up the ark of God. And so for us to understand this story, we really need to understand something about the ark of God. So the ark. Um, sadly, I think many of us, our, our understanding of the Ark, and no mind was until I did a little bit of work, is based on Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? So, no, it is not currently encased in Area 51 in a bunch of boxes. Uh, it's not there. Uh, but, but it actually does help a little bit to, to understand what's going on. So the Ark was a golden box. It's actually about the size of this pulpit. Like if you took the pulpit and, and, and turned it up on its side, it's about the size of the ark. And the lid of the ark was made of pure gold. So think about a big heavy lid about like this. And it was called the mercy seat. And on this, this pure gold mercy seat sat two cherubim. They were angels. And these angels sat facing one another on the ark with their heads bowed and their wings out. Right? So, so it was a, a beautiful, beautiful piece of furniture. But there was more to it than that. Inside the ark, inside the box, were the Ten Commandments, the, the tablets of stone on which Moses had chiseled the ten words of God. And next to those in the box was an urn. It was a, a golden urn that was filled with manna the bread from heaven that God had used to feed his people as they wandered through the wilderness. And next to that was the staff of Aaron, the priest of God that, that budded when God chose to show that Aaron was to be his priest and Aaron's family were to be his priests in perpetuity. So inside the, the ark was this just constant reminder of God's grace toward the people of Israel. But what made the ark special wasn't actually its appearance. It wasn't even its contents. What made the ark special was that it was the place where God met with his people. It was the place of his presence. The, the author of 2 Samuel reminds us of this in the way that he describes the ark, right? He says it's the, the ark of God there in verse 2, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts who sits enthroned on the cherubim. The ark was the place of God's presence. It was the earthly footstool of God's heavenly throne. David knew that for him to be successful, the Lord had to be with him. Right? We, we look, if you remember last week, if you were here in, in 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 10, we read, and David became greater and greater for the Lord, the God of hosts was with him. And then down in verse 12, it says, David knew, David knew, he understood this, that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. David knew that the Lord was with him and David desired to have the Lord with him in an even more profound way in Jerusalem. He wanted to bring the ark so that he could dwell in the presence of the Lord. And so when we read Ark here in this chapter, the thing that should come to mind, because it was the thing that came to mind for the Israelite reading this book, is 
God's presence. When we think of the ark, we're to think of God's presence, God's presence with his people. David wanted God's presence in Jerusalem. And so what does David do? David musters 30,000 men to go and to pick up the ark. Motorcades are something that I never experienced until I moved to Atlanta. Over the last however many years, we used to live over by Dobbins. And so anytime the president came in, they shut down all of our roads. We got to see the motorcade with all the cars and, you know, police in front, police behind, police blocking everything. And when the motorcade came, you knew someone important was coming through town. Well, yesterday I went to pick up my parents from the airport and, uh, and when we were driving, we saw a limousine that was, you know, bookended front and back by, by police cars. But that was it. And so, you know, my kids are impressed by, by what's going on. And I think it was my mom who said, it's probably not someone very important because if it was, there'd be more police, right? And, and, and here with 30,000 men, we get to feel the weight of the presence of God right? This is, this is the biggest motorcade in the history of the world, I think. Right? 30,000 men to come to a place that was 10 miles from Jerusalem and to grab a box that's about this big and to bring it back. 30,000 men. The fact that David gathered this massive army makes it clear that David understood the value of the ark, and it also makes it clear that David was determined to get it to Jerusalem. He was not gonna let anything get in his way. And so he and his men, they, they head to Bale Judah. They, they pick up the ark, everything seems fine and they get underway, right? We're told that, that they carry the ark on a new cart, verse three, and brought it out of the house of Abinadab. And it was a time of, of celebrating and, and rejoicing. Verse five tells us they were making merry before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals and lots and lots of musical instruments to celebrate the coming of the Lord to Jerusalem. It was a, a, a parade, right? Like something akin to the Macy's Thanksgiving Day parade people celebrating, dancing in the streets as the ark, you know, side by side with all these soldiers and priests marches towards Jerusalem. We, we read of, of this picture and we can't help but think things are going to go well. And yet they don't, right? The, the author actually gave us a hint that they wouldn't there in verse three, when he said they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which is on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. It seems, at least to, to our modern sensibilities, a good thing to put a nice piece of furniture on a new cart, right? You don't put something nice on an old beat-up ragged cart, it might fall off. And so they, they, they put it on a new cart. But, but here's the thing, the, the ark wasn't supposed to ever be put on a cart, the ark was supposed to be carried by the priest. Back in Exodus chapter 25, God gave Moses instructions for making the ark. And one of the things that was a part of the ark were these rings that were attached to the sides where poles could be slid in so that the ark could be carried. 
The ark wasn't supposed to be on a cart. The ark was supposed to be carried. And they weren't carrying the ark. Right? We, we don't put our most precious valuables in the back of a moving truck, do we? No, we, we, we carry them with us up front. Right? We, don't, we don't want to put them in the back because we know if we do, something bad might happen to them. Right? So, so we, we read this, and now that we understand what's going on, we know what's coming. Right? They put this really valuable thing on the back of the moving truck. And they head back to Jerusalem. It's a party. And then all of a sudden, it's not a party anymore. The ark comes to a place called the threshing floor of, of Nacon. And as it rolls across, the ark totters. The cart shakes, the, the oxen stumble, and Uzzah, who's walking behind the ark, sees it, and whether it was a gut reaction, we don't know, but he just grabbed hold of the ark. And in that moment, everything changed. Verse 7 there tells us that the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. And God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. And God didn't just rain on David's parade. He dropped a bomb into the middle of it. And Uzzah lay there dead in front of David and everyone. The music turned to silence. And in verse 8, we're told that David's initial reaction to this was anger. David looked at Uzzah and thought in his heart, Lord, how could you do this? All we were trying to do was to bring the ark into Jerusalem. But David quickly came to his senses, and we're told in the very next verse that David was now afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? In that moment, as Uzzah lay there, David's anger turned to fear because David was reminded of the truth that God is holy. And, and this really brings us to what I think is the heart of the passage. God is holy. Though he, he condescends to dwell among us, he is not like us. He's perfect, he's sinless, he's pure, and we aren't. And that means that we don't get to come into God's presence on our terms. If we're to be in his presence at all, we have to come on his terms. As I mentioned a, a moment ago, the, the Lord had given very, very clear instructions on how to carry the ark. So flip over, just flip back a few pages to Numbers chapter 4 in your Bibles. Numbers chapter 4, and keep a finger in, in 2 Samuel chapter 5. As I read these verses, listen for a couple of words. Holy and die. Verse 15. And when Aaron and his sons have finished covering the sanctuary and all the furnishings of the sanctuary, this included the ark, and the camp sets out after that, the sons of Kohath shall come to carry these but they must not touch the holy things lest they die. These are the things of the tent of meeting that the sons of Kohath are to carry. 
And Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, shall have charge over the oil for the light, the fragrance, incense, the regular grain offerings, and the anointing oil with the oversight of the whole tabernacle and all that is in it of the sanctuary and its vessels. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Let not the tribe of the clans of the Kohathites be destroyed from among the Levites, but deal thus with them, that they may live and not die when they come near to the most holy things. Aaron and his sons shall go in and appoint them each to his task and to his burden, but they shall not go in and look on the holy things even for a moment, lest they die. Those were the instructions for carrying the ark. If you touch it, you die. If you look upon it, you die. What was God communicating? He was communicating the fact that he is holy. Right? The ark was the symbol of God's holy presence. And so as David stood there looking at Uzzah's lifeless body, laying next to the ark, the fact that God is holy must have hit home to him in an incredibly profound way. Right? David desired the presence of the Lord, but now all of a sudden he feared it. Again, look at the question he asked there in verse 9. How can the ark of the Lord come to me? If the ark, which is, is merely the symbol of the Lord's presence, can't even be touched, how on earth could David or anyone else dwell anywhere near God's presence and live? So what does David do? He stops the parade. He sends everyone home and he sends the ark away into the house of a man named Obed-Edom, who we trust was quite afraid himself as he took the ark into his own house. Likely he was a priest, and so he at least was someone who had been given God's permission to be near the ark. So David sends him away, and, and we, we just got to stop here and acknowledge like, this is a shocking story. If you're, you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, this is one of those Bible stories that just jars you a little bit, isn't it? What on earth, how on earth could God do what he just did? Well, I think the answer to the question, why, why did God do this? Why is it here in the Bible? I think the answer is that God intends to instill in us and everyone who reads this chapter a holy fear, like the fear that David experienced. The, the question that David asked there in verse 9, and the question really behind that question, it's the most important thing that anyone can ever ask. Right? If God is holy, if he's perfectly pure, if he's perfectly righteous, if he's perfectly just, how can any sinful human being like you, like me, ever hope to dwell in God's presence. We, we all want to go to heaven, right? Everyone wants to go to heaven. Well, heaven is the place of God's presence, right? This God that killed Uzzah is the one who lives in heaven, right? So we have to ask the question, if, if the God that killed Uzzah is the God that lives in heaven, what hope do you or I have of ever being able to go to heaven when we die? What, what hope do we have that God is going to let us in? We, we think that David in Psalm 24 
was reflecting on this event as he wrote these words in verses three and four. He says, who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord and and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands. Think of Uzzah for a moment, right? I I love R.C. Sproul in his book, The Holiness of God, talks about how Uzzah thought that his hand was cleaner than the dirty ground. It wasn't. Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Clean hands, a pure heart. And that's the only way that anyone can dwell in God's presence. It's our only hope of heaven. But none of us has clean hands and a pure heart. You don't. I don't. So what's our hope? Right? We, we don't deserve for God to welcome us into heaven. Our, what we deserve is, is God's wrath. We deserve his judgment. We deserve to die just like Uzzah. But, but this brings us right to the good news of the gospel. Right? It's the reason that all of us are here. Right? We worship this holy God. If you're here and you're not a Christian, you're wondering, why on earth are you here if this is what God is like? Right? Well, here's the answer to that question. It's the gospel. God, in his kindness, this holy God, has made a way for people like you and me to dwell in his presence. Right? The answer to the question, how can a sinful human being enter into the presence of a holy God, is the person and work of Jesus Christ. See, God, in his kindness, sent his son into the world to live the life that you and I could never live. Jesus had perfectly pure hands. He had a perfectly pure heart. He never once, as David says here, lifted up his soul to what was false. He never swore deceitfully. And even though Jesus did nothing deserving of death, he willingly died. He took the wrath of God for sinners like us so that we can enter in to God's holy presence without fear, as Brad talked about earlier this morning, without the dread of death. So friend, if if you desire God's presence, and you should, right, we're about to see it's the place of the greatest blessing that you'll ever know. If you desire God's presence, the only hope you have of ever entering into it is through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. The call to you this morning is to turn from your sin and to trust in him. He can cleanse your hands. He can purify your heart so that you can dwell in the presence of God so that this presence, which seems right now to be a thing of such dread, can become a thing of incredible delight. That's the good news of the gospel. And I pray that you would learn the lesson of Uzzah this morning and turn from your sins and trust in Jesus. So so after the death of Uzzah, David sends the ark away to the house of Obed-Edom. He's afraid. And we're told that the ark spent three months there And in this period of time, the Lord poured out his blessings on Obed-Edom. It's this beautiful thing we see the Lord doing, right? The Lord Lord warns David with the death of Uzzah. And yet the Lord woos David with the blessings of Obed-Edom, right? We, We worship a God who warns, who is holy, yet a God who woos, right? Who calls us to himself. And so David gets news of this blessing, and and he's once again determined to bring the ark into Jerusalem. He wants the blessing of God's presence. 
But this time, he's determined to do it on God's terms. So look at verse 13. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. So notice there, the ark is no longer on a cart. Those who bore the ark, right? The priests were carrying the ark the way that God intended them to carry it. And then right after they had taken six steps, David offered a sacrifice. So we gotta ask the question, right? Why the sacrifice and why after six steps? It's kind of an odd thing to, to do. But David, David had learned the lesson of Uzzah, right? He understood, again, that, that we don't enter into God's presence on our own terms. We enter into God's presence on God's terms, right? He understood from the Old Testament law that the presence of God with his people, for us to dwell in his presence, it required the shedding of blood, right? This, again, points us, us to Jesus Christ, this, this sacrifice that David makes. A death has to occur for us to enter into God's presence and not die ourselves. So David offers a sacrifice. He acknowledges his sinfulness and he seeks to atone for it with the death of an animal. But, but why six steps? And this just seems odd. They took six steps. The author is very clear, six steps, and then they sacrificed the animal. Well, well seven in Israel, we, we read it even in the, the passage from Revelation this morning. Seven is this number of completion in the Israelites' mind. And in their minds, the seventh step would have been the step of, of, of completion, if you will. And David was making it clear that this journey would never be complete until blood was shed, sins were atoned for, and then and only then could the ark of God come into the presence of his people. Only then could God's people enter into God's presence. And so David sacrificed on the seventh step. And with the offering made, the ark was taken forward and, and the, the celebration began again, right? The parade that had ended so abruptly three months earlier begins once again and David is in the lead. In, in verse 14, we're told that David danced before the Lord with all his might and he was wearing a, a linen ephod. There's some question here as to whether David's acting as a priest by wearing this ephod or if it's actually just an act of humility. He's not wearing his kingly robes, but rather he's humbling himself before the Lord, just like everybody else, and dancing and singing and praising God, not as the king, but just as another sinner who knows that God has been gracious to him. So, so David is dancing and he's dancing as hard as he possibly can. And the ark comes into Jerusalem and as it does, David's wife, Michael, comes to the window of the palace and she looks out. She hears all the noise, she wonders what's going on and when she looks out, what does she see? She sees David, she sees him dancing before the Lord. And what are we told she does? She despised him in her heart. That's what it says there in verse 16. She despised him in her heart. You know, it's, it's, it's something to ponder as you think about Michael. We'll get to, to the rest of her story in a moment. But just how hard it is 
for us to rejoice with those who rejoice. Right? She sees David rejoicing, praising God in his joy, and she just will not have it. Right? And, and, and that's the bent of our hearts, sadly, too, so often, isn't it? It's the reason why in Romans 12, 15, God actually has to command us, Paul commands us to rejoice with those who rejoice. Now, we'll get to the heart of her lack of rejoicing in a moment, but just something, something to think about there. So David has no idea that this has happened, and he goes on completely unaware of it, and the ark gets put in a tent. Now, the, the actual tent of meeting was in another place. That's another story for another time, but David sets up a tent for the ark to house it. Um, eventually, David's going to want to build a house, a temple, for the ark. That's actually in the very next chapter, chapter 7. But for now, the ark is in its tent. And interestingly, just as David has done as the journey began, David again makes sacrifices. At the beginning of the journey, sacrifices offered. At the end of the journey, sacrifices offered. Again, another reminder that this is a holy God dwelling in the presence of sinful men. Right? And so the, the offering has to be made for them to be able to dwell in his presence. And then David goes on in his joy and seeks to bless every single inhabitant of Jerusalem. He gives them bread and meat and cakes, right? Every man and woman, it says there in verse 19, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, a cake of raisins, to each one, David's joy overflowed into generosity. Right? He was so overjoyed at the gift that God had given him, he could not help but give gifts to others. Right? That's the, the, the beauty of God's presence in his people. Right? It ought to fill us with a kind of joy that overflows to us blessing others. So he, he gives all of these things away, and then he wants to go home and bless his family. And in verse 20, we read that instead of getting to bless his family, he got an earful from Michael, his wife. Verse 20 says, and David returned to bless his household, but Michael, the daughter of Saul, came to meet David. He didn't let him in the house, right? And said, how the king of Israel has honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants. Females, and servants, female servants, is one of the vulgar fellows who shamelessly uncovers himself. So when, when Michael saw David out there dancing, what she saw, this verse tells us, was the king of Israel. How the king of Israel has honored himself today. So she saw a king who wasn't acting in her mind like a king. Rather than standing above the people, he was standing with the people. He was dancing with the people it's difficult to know if she is speaking in hyperbole here or if as David was dancing because of the close of the day, he exposed himself. I don't know. Uh, but David didn't seem terribly concerned about it at all. David was more concerned about what was going on in Michael's heart. And so listen to the way he answers her. He says, she said, how you've honored yourself before the eyes of your servants. That's what she says in verse 20. And notice what David says in verse 21. It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will make merry before the Lord. Michael, when she looked at David, 
she saw this man making a fool of himself in the eyes of his subject, this king making a fool of himself in the eyes of his subject. But David didn't care about the eyes of his subjects. David only cared about the eyes of the Lord. He cared far more about how he looked in God's eyes, and he trusted that if he honored the Lord, that the people who loved the Lord would honor him as well. So, so three times, I just want us to notice this, is three times in these verses, Michael is called the daughter of Saul. Michael, the daughter of Saul. It's there in verse 16. Michael, the daughter of Saul, there in verse 20. Verse 23, Michael, the daughter of Saul. What's the author pointing out? I, I think he's pointing out the reality that just like Saul, Saul's daughter cared more about the opinions of others than she cared about the opinion of the Lord. And this is what cost Saul his kingdom, right? Saul was so concerned about the people around him fleeing that he sacrificed animals unlawfully in order to keep them there. He cared more about what the people thought than what the Lord thought. And Parents, this is just a, a good reminder for us that we have a, a significant influence on our kids, don't we? And though it isn't always the case, and I mean, praise God, it's not always the case, but often our kids end up valuing the things that we value. They're watching our lives. They're listening to our words. And so friends, let's, let's labor to set a godly example for our children. Let's labor to care more about what God thinks than what the world thinks, because that's what we want for them, isn't it? for them to care far more about what God thinks of them than what the world thinks of them, what their friends think of them. Well, the, the story has been an emotional roller coaster, and it ends on an even further down note there in verse 23. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. Now, it isn't clear whether the Lord closed Michael's womb or whether David essentially put her away after their argument and she remained childless for the rest of her life. Whatever's going on, though the author never really states it outright, I think he does intend us to see this as the consequence of Michael's sin, of caring more about what people thought than what the Lord thought. But, but I, I want us to tread very, very carefully here, right? Because we can read something like this and be drawn to think that the inability to have children is either always or at least primarily connected to someone's sin. Right? The Bible never says that. Right? Scripture gives us pictures of, of, of a picture like this of Michael, but it also gives us a picture of Elizabeth in Luke chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, where Luke tells us this about Elizabeth and her husband, Zechariah. They were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren. Barrenness, infertility, is not necessarily the result of sin, right? At the end of the day, ultimately, it is. We live in a fallen world, and that is the reason that some of us are not able to have children, or at least some of us not even able to have as many children as we would like. Right? That's the result of the fall. But we shouldn't read a verse like verse 23 and think that our inability to have children is the result of our own sin. Right? Childlessness, like 
any other trial is an opportunity to search your heart, absolutely. But more than that, it is an opportunity to seek the Lord, to remember the gospel, and to trust and to rest in the goodness of God and to use it as an opportunity to grow closer to him. He's a God who's with us. He's a God who cares for us. And so 2 Samuel comes to a close on this this strange end. It is a strange chapter of God's word. We we just have to admit that, full of its its ups and downs. But but there are three specific things that I think it teaches us. We've already seen the heart of it, right? If we're going to enter into the presence of a holy God, it's going to require the blood of Jesus Christ. That's the heart of this passage. But I think there are three lessons that we can learn as well. First lesson, God's people desire God's presence. God's people desire God's presence. Right? The, the story of 2 Samuel is really the story of David's desire to be in the presence of the Lord. And his desire wasn't politically motivated. No, it was, it was personal. David is the king who penned Psalm 27, verse 4, which says this, One thing I have asked of the Lord, and that I will seek. What was the great desire of David's heart? That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. And, And even after David sinned so greatly against the Lord, just a few chapters later with Bathsheba and the death of Uriah, David wasn't concerned about losing his kingdom. David was concerned about losing the presence of the Lord. He prays in Psalm 51, verse 11, O Lord, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. David's great desire, his greatest desire was to dwell in the presence of the Lord all the days of his life. And that ought to be the great desire of every single one of God's people. This side of the cross, we get to know and experience the presence of God in a way that David never did. The Spirit of the Lord was upon David, but the Spirit of the Lord wasn't in David. We have the Spirit of God in us, with us, and the promise that God is never going to leave us or forsake us. We can experience the presence of God all the time. And yet, interestingly, the New Testament says that we can experience his presence to varying degrees. And it's possible to to quench the spirit. It's possible to resist the spirit. Or we, we do that when we sin, when we deliberately ignore or resist the work of the spirit in our hearts as he works to convict us of sin and, and to call us to obedience to God's word. And so for us, part of what it means to desire the presence of God is to fight for holiness, to labor to listen to the leading of the Spirit as he convicts us of sin, as he guides us into the truth of God's word, as he calls us to obedience. The author of Hebrews calls us to strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. We show that we desire the presence of God by pursuing holiness. Another way that we show that we desire the presence of God is by gathering with God's people. The, the, the Lord is present by his spirit in each and every Christian. But the New Testament tells us that Jesus is uniquely present when his people gather together in his name. 
He says in, in, in Matthew 18, 20, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Interesting word, not in them, right? He's in us by his spirit, but he says he's, he's among them. Jesus is, is uniquely present when his people gather together in his name. Right, and friends, that's what we do every single Sunday, isn't it? We gather together in his name. It's what we're doing right now. We gather together, and when we do, we catch a glimpse of God's presence, of the presence of Jesus Christ in the lives of one another. We glimpse his holiness as we see the holiness of his people. We glimpse his love as we see the love of his people. We glimpse his grace as we see his people extending grace and forgiveness to one another. Right, if we desire the presence of the Lord, we're going to desire to gather with his people. To steal John Piper's term, desiring to gather with God's people is a significant part of what it means to desire God. If you desire God, you're going to desire to gather with God's people. So are, are you determined to gather with God's people as often as you can? I'm going to look into the camera for a minute because I know that there are a number of you still out there who can't for a number of reasons gather with us right now. And the question I have for you, brothers and sisters, is do you still desire it? Have you noticed? I think we all have. Brad talked about it this morning. We've all noticed the reality that there's just something different about watching a service on TV. It's not the same thing, and it's not the same thing because we're not gathered together. And so, brothers and sisters at home, are you longing to gather? I, I hope that you are because we are longing to have you gather with us again. If we desire the presence of the Lord, we're going to desire to gather we're also going to long for heaven, right? Where's the place of God's presence? If we want God's presence more and more, we're going to long for heaven. We're going to see the things of this world rightly as fleeting and fading. And we're going to desire the permanent presence of God in heaven forever. That's the first lesson. God's people desire God's presence. The second lesson and, and shorter, God's people are to fear God. Brad said, we don't fear. It's true. We don't fear God's judgment anymore. But the Christian still fears God. The, the God who struck down Uzzah is the same God that is present in you right now by his spirit. He's a God to be feared. Right? The fact that we approach him now through the blood of Christ doesn't change the fact that he's, <clears throat> excuse me, doesn't change the fact that he's holy. It doesn't change the fact that he hates sin. And the gospel reminds us of that, right? It reminds us of his holiness. And that means that as the author of Hebrews puts it in Hebrews 10, we cannot go on sinning deliberately. We can't toy with sin. No, even as, as those purified, right, whose hands have been cleansed, whose hearts have been purified by the blood of Christ, we're to strive now by his grace to cleanse our hands and to purify our hearts. That's what James says. As God's people, we no longer live in fear of God's judgments, but yet we're still called to fear the Lord. And if we fear the Lord, we're going to flee from sin. God's people fear God because God is holy. And then third and finally, the last lesson we learn from this passage is this. God's people ought to be the most joyful people on the planet. 
The good news of the gospel is that the God of the universe, the the Lord of hosts, has made it possible for sinners like you and me to dwell in his presence forever. And he dwells in us even now, right? If the presence of the ark in Jerusalem led David to dance before the Lord with all his might and led the people of God to shout and to sing, friends, how much more joy ought we to have knowing that God is in us that God is with us and that one day we will be with God forever. There is no such thing as a joyless Christian. We, We know that we have the presence of God. And as David puts it so powerfully in Psalm 1611, in his presence, there is fullness of joy. It doesn't mean that life is gonna be all unicorns and rainbows. Right? Paul talks about the reality of us needing to rejoice even in the midst of suffering. The world will disdain us for following Christ. The way that, the way that Michael despised David in her heart. Trials will come and yet, as David says, in the presence of the Lord, there is fullness of joy forevermore. And that should lead us to be joyful even now. So with that, brothers and sisters, let me pray. Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you for the reminder that you are the holy God who rules over the universe. We thank you for the reminder of the gospel. And Father, we do pray that we would desire your presence above all else. We pray that we would fear you as we ought, as our holy God. And we pray, Lord, that we would be filled with joy, the joy of knowing you, the joy of your presence, the the fullness of joy that you give to those who you draw near to. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.